This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore and I'm your host. If you've been listening the past couple weeks to a month-ish, you've noticed we've had some guest hosts on some of those episodes. I want to say a huge thank you to everyone that's done one of those. I love all of them. I'm so thankful that they've been willing to step in and do some of that and provide quality content. While we have been adjusting to having our new son at home, he's doing really well. Our whole family is doing great, so thank you. We've gotten some nice messages of people praying for us and things like that, so thank you so much for all of that. We'll have a couple more of those coming up, just kind of spaced in through out, but there was some episodes that I was really excited to do, some people that I had already lined up to talk to that I really wanted to, so we've been doing some of those as well. If you didn't listen to the episode with Austin Channing Brown, I would definitely recommend going back and catching that one. Today, I have the extreme pleasure of talking with Hannah Brencher. If you don't know who that is, you should go back and listen to episode 14, where we talked to her for the first time on this show, but she's a fellow Atlanta person, as well as an author, a speaker, a nonprofit runner, owner, founder, whichever, all of the above, and just a, an awesome person. So glad to count her as a friend and to have her back on the show Today we talk about a huge variety of things, all kind of centered around this idea of being present. Her new book is called Come Matter Here, and so we talk a lot about being here in a getting there world and uh, just a, a huge amount of things. It's always a blast getting to talk to Hannah for the show, so I really hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get into the interview, just a couple quick reminders First off, if you like the show, if you've been enjoying the past couple weeks or months, or maybe you've been listening for a year and a half now, you can support, make the show possible at cxmhpodcast.com slash support. There's a bunch of different rewards there, different levels, so go check that out. We also have coming up, we have uh, some projects that are really exciting, one of which is a mailbag question and answer episode. So send some questions in. If you have some questions, some topics you'd like us to talk about, please email those in. We would love to hear from you, the listener. So you can send those into cxmhpodcast at gmail.com. Just put right there in the subject line of the email answers or mailbag episode or Q&A or whatever it is. I'll definitely figure it out. So make sure you send those in. I feel like I had a couple other things that I had in mind when I sat down to record, but I've lost them all, so that's all right. If I think of them, I'll toss them in the show notes. As always, there's tons of things in the show notes, resources, previous episodes, 
ways to connect with Hannah or me or CXMH, things like that. If you're looking for any specific topics, things like that, make sure to check out cxmhpodcast.com. You can search as well as, I don't think I've ever mentioned on the show before, but if you're looking for resources like books, other podcasts, websites, things about faith and mental health or specific things like suicide prevention or any of those type things, I have a page of resources that I try to keep updated pretty frequently, so you can find that at robert-vore.com slash resources. All right, I think that's all the announcements I have. Here is my interview with Hannah Brencher. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited today to have a returning guest, Hannah Brencher. Hannah is a writer, TED speaker, online educator, author, blogger, all sorts of things. Pretty fancy bio, you know, one of the White House's women working to do good. I think we read like a really fancy bio of you last time you were on the show. So (laughs) if you're unfamiliar with Hannah, go check out our previous episode with her. But Hannah, how are you doing today? I'm doing so great. I'm so excited to be back here. We had such a great conversation last time. So Yeah. Yeah, well, I appreciate you coming back on the show. Mostly, or I guess one of the main thing that we're talking about today is you have a brand new book coming out, actually the day after this releases, coming out May 29th, called Come Matter Here, Your Invitation to Be Here in a Getting There World. What does that mean? So it really, um, well, it is as it says, it is an invitation. I tried to write the book um, as an invitation. But I I found in my own life, especially in my early to mid-20s, was that I was consistently always trying to get there, wherever there was, you know, whether that was success, whether that was another accolade, whether that was something that I could do in order to, I guess, prove to people that I mattered, you know, as much as I like try to say like I didn't live by that standard, I think in a lot of ways I did. And I think a lot of us do. We want to know that we matter in some capacity. But I found that as I was always striving to do the next big thing and the next big thing, I missed something really simple. And that's just kind of the here and now, you know, I missed the people around me. I missed the chance to root myself deep in community. I missed the the real magic, which was happening in the everyday ordinary things that you never really see or stop to look around if you're always pushing for something in the future. Hmm. That's so good. So let me ask you this. I mean, that sounds pretty fantastic, but you are, for most people listening, you are somebody who has like achieved more things or, you know, theoretically has done more, has gotten to the there, right? You have a couple of books yeah. now, you do speaking engagements, you have, you know, a successful uh, organization, things like that, right? So what about people who say, well, I haven't gotten there. There are things that I want to accomplish. So maybe, you know, easy for you to say you've already gotten there, but mm. most of us haven't. Yeah, you know, I'm definitely not downplaying like being like achieving things and like hustling towards what matters to you and always trying to get better. I'm an advocate for those things. I also noticed though that I, as I was striving to get these things and and now I guess you would say have them under my belt, I thought in some way that these things might change things or they might fill me or it might make me feel like this growing hole inside of me was finally filled. 
and it, it never happened. It didn't mm. matter if I gave a TED talk or if I got a book deal or if I was speaking around the country, traveling every single week, that disconnect inside of me continued to grow. And I guess I, I woke up and realized like, man, these things that I was pushing for, like, this isn't the goal. It's still a goal to be successful in some capacity. But if I look at that and I think that that thing is everything, I'm going to be disappointed by it. Yeah. Yeah. So the last time we talked, we talked a lot about some of your, the when you were walking through anxiety and depression, and we talked about kind of this idea that God works through people. And as I read through this book, it seemed like if I had to, you know, pick some of the major themes running through this book, I mean, all of that is very heavily featured in this book. Mm, yeah. What, what led you to, to write about a lot of those things in maybe a more, I don't know, more honest, but more, you know, this book largely deals with your walk through depression. Yeah, I mean, it really, that, that second walk through depression was pivotal in my life. And um, I think I think we might have talked about this, how like the first time that I went through depression, like it took me so long to even figure out that's what it was. I didn't yeah. know anything about depression. I didn't know if it ran, I didn't know that it ran in my family. But so I guess I thought that like, depression was something that like you struggle with once and then it's done it's over with it doesn't come back and that that was a mistake for me to realize that like yeah depression is something that may show up every year for me or every two years for me but this particular um, bout of depression that would be classified as a severe depression it changed my life I mean it rocked my world I went from fully functioning running a global company, traveling here and there and everywhere. And I guess you would say like maybe before then I had the warning signs of like a high functioning depression. Um, I was, cause I had actually somebody comment on something the other day, um, saying like, wow, like to do all of these things with depression, like you're already so successful. And I'm like, yeah. And and that's where I guess it can be a high functioning depression where it's like, yeah, that anxiety really drove me to do a lot of things, but it was all driven and done out of fear. But so when this severe depression came on me, it went from like, I'm on top of things, I'm doing things, I'm checking things off the to-do list to like, I really can't even do anything. Like I can barely get out of bed and I'm needing people to help me just like function throughout the day. And so I really had to learn, as I said in the book, like to build a new normal. And I had to realize that while, yeah, I want to be successful or work hard or have good work to show for myself that can't be the end goal. That cannot be the thing that I put my entire focus on or I will I will lose my life to it and I will lose the people around me that like are just kind of getting what's ever left of me at the end of the day. And I just knew like as a young, like single 20 something, it's like, okay, that's that's good for a little while. I can do that for a little while. But if I, I thought at that time, like if I plan to get married, if I plan to have children, if I plan to like build a family like this, this is going to run on E at some point. It is not mm. sustainable. Yeah. That's funny you bring that up because another theme kind of running throughout the book, I noticed you write a lot about dating and you write about a couple ex-boyfriends. And then yeah. <laughs> in the end, we're finally introduced to your current husband. But I mean, how did he feel about that reading about all these other boyfriends? 
Well, he's still reading the book, but um, <laughs> I, you know, we had conversations about it and I let him know like, okay, like this, I'm, I'm writing about this or I'm writing about this. And he, we're very open about that. That's kind of always been the way that I've like written on the internet, you know? Um, and so I have like, you change people's names and identifying details, but I think I've always been the type of person where it's like, I think that people come into our lives to like, they teach us something and they change us in a lot of ways. And so yeah. I never, I would never put somebody into my writing to be like, oh, this is what this ex-boyfriend did to me. You know, like I'm not there to bash anybody, but to say like, I learned something pivotal and it helped me in the journey. It helped me get to the point that I'm at now. Yeah, I noticed, I mean, you, that's always present in your writing, but especially in this book, I mean, there's stories upon stories with people and it is always kind of couched in this, frame of, you know, here's what I learned from this, here's what God was teaching me through this person, kind of doubling down on that, you know, God works through people thing that we talked about last time, kind of that that theme. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, honestly, that's the only reason that I would ever even include a story with somebody else is if they taught me something. I, I talk a lot and I write a lot about like, you know, the Taylor Swifting of like, you know, where Taylor Swift got a lot of her fame from writing about ex-boyfriends um, <laughs> in her songs. But the real, like the realization for me is that it's like, it's not because I don't write about things because I'm bitter or I'm angry or haven't dealt with feelings, you know, like I largely will include a person in a piece of work if they have changed me or if they have taught me something. And I think that that's the way that I approach writing about people. Um, just because I, I don't know, I just don't think that that would be anything for the world if I was writing about somebody because I was still mad or I wasn't over something, you know? Yeah. yeah. So there's one quote in here that I really loved kind of on this topic of God working through other people, but you wrote this, you wrote, we can change on our own, but other people are often the catalysts who push us to the edge of believing we could be someone different when we land. That's so yeah. good. So that's, I mean, obviously true for you is that one of the major ways that you see God move throughout your life, kind of looking back on it is through other people, right? Always, 100% through other people, like probably... I mean, we, me and my friend were talking about this the other day and just kind of joking because like she was like, I just really see God through nature. And I'm like, I never see God through nature. Like, never. <laughs> I am not the person that like goes out and sees the sunset. And it's like, oh, I really felt God in that. Like, it's always through people. And so it's like, as long as I am willing to be there and be present in the moment, God always shows up. And like, in these ways where you're like, man, like, I swear that belonged in a rom-com or like that's something that like only would happen in a book, but like God uses those. I think he knows that I, f I see him most prominently through stories, through dialogue and through characters. Yeah. That's so good. And you wrote a little bit or not even a little bit, a good chunk about the people that helped you through this most recent, you know, walk through depression and yeah. how strongly you came to realize that you needed them that, you know, I think we, a lot of times we have this like, oh, just me pulling myself up by the bootstraps, especially in Christian world and especially in mental health world. But I mean, you came largely to realize that you needed all these people to help you walk through this depression that God was kind of orchestrating that, right? 100%. I don't think I would have ever made it without without these people. And it, it was one of those things where it's like I hadn't really built 
I hadn't built those strong support systems in Atlanta for the six months that I'd been there. And you almost don't know to build them until something comes crashing down and you need people. And so I spent a large chunk of that time in Connecticut with people that I had grown with and changed with in the last few years. But even that, like walking through it and like walking through these people, like helping you put your life back together. It was it was really tough for me to say, like, and still I'm going to go back to Atlanta. I'm going to finish this story out in Atlanta. But I kind of learned that that's what we are to other people and that I'm able to do that for other people. And I think that that was a huge lesson for me is that, like, I don't know where we got this idea that, like, people are supposed to come into our lives and then, like, always stay in our lives. You know, people come in and out of our lives at different seasons, during different things. And it's one of those things where it's, like, you may get the chance in your life to walk with somebody through something really tough. And it'll change you. It will it will teach you a lot about God and a lot about humanity and just a lot about like the world and the fact that there still is a lot of darkness in this world. And so I'm so thankful for the people that weren't scared of it, that like didn't run from me, but that like also I would say the biggest thing was that they held me to truth, you know, like they, they didn't let me just throw my own pity party 24 seven. They didn't let me just consistently talk about what needed to be talked about because you know depression is a self-obsessing illness and so Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk myself in circles they were the people that pulled me out of that though they were the people that told me to look around and see others they were the people that like would have me go run an errand for them or get me out of the house to do this because that was what I needed more than anything. I needed people that said like, yes, we see that you're in this, but we're not going to let you stay here. We're going to, we're going to walk with you out of this. Yeah. And I think that's such a, a important balance there. You just said, you know, they said, yes, we see what's happening. You know, they're not saying, oh, everything's fine. You know, just ignore it. But also saying, Hey, we're, we're not going to stay here, you know, kind of saying we see where you are, but also, we're not going to stay here. We're going to help get you out of this. Yeah. Huge. So you talked just then about kind of the transition to Atlanta. Uh, will you tell us a little bit about that story? Cause that the book also kind of largely is a story about you moving to Atlanta and kind of finding new roots and things like that. I mean, what happened there and inspired you to move and all that? I mean, I really, I went and I visited Atlanta at one point and it was very interesting just for the fact that, you know, like I I visit a lot of cities, I go to a lot of cities and that was the first city that I ever thought like, man, I could stay here and I could, I feel like there's more to be seen of this city. I feel like I'm supposed to figure some things out here. And that feeling had never overtaken me before, except for in New York City. And so I, at the time, you know, like I was self-employed. And so that was where everybody around me was like saying, you know, like you can go anywhere, you can work from anywhere, you know, like go here, go there. For me personally, it was just more like, it was a very big, brave move for me to decide that I was going to pack up my life and I was going to move to a new city and I was going to settle in a new city. And I think I thought maybe it would be like six months or eight months or a year, like go and come back. I don't think I ever really knew that like this would become my home. This would be the place that I just like, I, you know, I, I met my best friends and I fell in love and I now own a home here in Atlanta. And so it was one of those things though, where it's like, I, and I bring it up in the book of like, 
I am very careful not to be like, you know, like God told me to move to Atlanta because I think that we we so easily sink into that um, that way of talking like God said this and God said that. And then when it doesn't work out, it's like, well, where was God? And like he must not have been here. And so I'm very careful about that to say I did say for a while, like God told me to move to Atlanta. But I think God would have been present and with me no matter where I was geographically on the map. You know, it's mm. not his character to be with me in Connecticut, but not in Atlanta. Yeah. But I often have realized now that it was a mistake to think I'll just move and I will unpack and my baggage won't follow me. And the things that I have not dealt with won't follow me. Um Anytime you go somewhere new, I think there is like this honeymoon period and then that wears off and reality sets in and you have to make that choice of, am I going to plant roots? Am I going to really be here or am I going to be consistently running away? And so I ran for a little bit, but I eventually got to the point of like, no, like I'm building into this life. Like I'm doing this thing. Yeah. So kind of the theme there of, well, once I, once I get there, I will be whole or I'll feel complete or whatever, right? I mean, we talked about it a bit ago in terms of like accomplishments or achievements, but right there, you're even talking about it in the sense of geographically, you know, oh, if I can just move somewhere else, that will be perfect. And all this nonsense that I have, you know, won't follow me, but you're saying it's it's not not the case. It's everything. It's, oh, if I could just get into a different relationship, then things would go away. Or if I could just move somewhere else, or if I could just get into that, you know, that degree program that I wanted to do. It's it's all these little things that we think are going to complete us. Mm. And I know I probably know more prominently more about this topic because I am an Enneagram 4. And so <laughs> Enneagram 4s always feel like there's something missing, like something vital is missing from the landscape. But yeah, like it's it's anything that you use to try to fill a hole and say, if I have this, then I will be happy. Then I will be complete. If I have more money, if I have a better relationship, if I have new friends and I think in a lot of it, it's like we're lacking this ability to find contentment right where we are or mm. this ability to say, you know what, like if I'm not happy with this, then I'm, I'm going to move towards maybe changing something or maybe showing up to it more or, you know, going through this with a little bit more endurance. Um, because I think we've been fed this lie that like happiness is instantaneous, that relationships are just easy, that everything grows overnight. And then when that reality isn't there the honeymoon stage wears off we're kind of like we're bemissed we're like what's going on and (laughs) like that's actually where the real work begins and that's actually where I think you find the most joy and you find the most peace and you find out like the beauty is in the long haul but like nothing in our world no one is talking about the long haul Hmm. so one of the ways that you kind of illustrate this in the book is when you first get to Atlanta it's really hard, right? I mean, you spend a lot of time talking about kind of how hard it is to be in transition. You're expecting, oh, I'll just find community or I'll find this or I'll find that. I mean, what makes that so hard? About finding community or? Yeah, just about, I mean, transition. I mean, I think, and maybe it's just the the chunk of life I'm in where, you know, we're all mid-20s and things, but I feel like almost everybody I know is in this weird stage of transition where, oh, we're trying to get to the next thing, but it is also like really hard because you think, transitions kind of happen but you kind of also have to like cause them to happen I mean you write about the difference between finding community versus building community things like that yeah because I think it's one of those things where it's like 
you have to make, I know I had to make the decision to like be all in and be invested and be, I, I often, I don't use the word as much anymore, like the word intentional, because I think it gets overused a lot. <laughs> like, I really had to learn, I use the word deliberate, like I have to learn to be deliberate with people. And like, in the sense of like, you know, we could all sit around and complain, like, you know, no one's inviting me to things or like, I'm not getting invited to parties. But it's like, maybe in those times, we have to learn to be the invitation, you know. Hmm. And so, I don't know, for me, it had to stop being like, well, like, if I show up to a gathering of me and my neighbors, and I'm walking away and I'm upset because I'm like, you know, like we we really didn't even touch on any good conversations. It was all kind of shallow. It was all kind of business as usual. Well, is that not part partly my fault that I didn't push the conversation to go in another direction? Yeah. So I think it's like one of those things where it's like every every step that we make like is going to require work out of us and like I want to be moving into new seasons and transitioning into new parts of life because I feel like I'm ready for it and I'm ready for the challenge. Not because I look around and I think, well, everybody else is doing that. So I probably should do it too, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I think we, we find out as we get older, I think that like our circle of friends, like our groups of people, like they get smaller and smaller. And I think it's, that's, it's so much harder to maintain relationships when you get older, like, yeah. But it's a lot of work, but I think it's also like it's completely gratifying when you find people that also think that, you know, you're worth putting in the hard work. Yeah, I, I might have mentioned this on the show before. I know I've had this conversation a couple of times with people, but I kind of feel like we're set up for failure in terms of building relationships because we go from, you know, you're in school for two uh, two decades of your life where you're like smushed into a place with people and then all of a sudden you get out into the real world and you don't see people every day, you don't have, like, you have yeah. to put in the time and the effort of, oh, well, I'm going to drive over to your house or whatever it is. And I feel like that chunk of time for most people I know is like, oh, wait, where do I have no friends now, you know? Yes, I know. And if you're not careful, you can like listen to like those lies in your brain of like, wait, but where are my friends? Like, wait, no one's reached out to me, you know? Like, right. And, and a lot of that is not actually truth. It's just the fact that we all are busy and we need to be reaching out to one another. And I, I learned this specifically from a friend of mine, Dawn, who like every week without fail, she will reach out and she will set up a time for us to hang out, whether that's going to be something that like we're going to do as like a group of four, like me and my husband and her and her husband, or just me and her one on one. And she does this without fail with other people. And it's such an admirable trait that I've like duplicated it in some ways for other people in my life to be the one that reaches out and extends the invitation because it's just not it's not a normal thing to do. Like if we're not careful, a whole entire week goes by and we've had no meaningful conversations. We've reached out to no one. We've simply maintained the life around us, but we've not pushed it to any new kind of level. Hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that kind of factors into this, I think, is you talk about trying to kind of be impressive to people versus allowing people to really know you. What's the yeah. difference there? I mean, I think it's really easy to be like impressive. And I think that like what you do things to garner applause in some ways, but like to, for someone to know you, it's like, yeah, all of that impressive stuff has worn off. And like, this is the reality. This is who you are. And I think a lot of people saw that in me when I walked through that depression, because 
I wasn't able to perform for anyone. Like I wasn't able to be impressive in any way. I was simply like existing at that time. Um, And there's something, I don't know, there's just something beautiful about that because like, I think I've believed for a long time, like this lie that if I'm not doing things to impress people, then like they don't want me or they don't want to stick around, you know? And I think it's really beautiful to get to this place where it's like, we're here for each other simply because we like and we love each other, not because we do these big extravagant acts every single day or because we garner a lot of like social media likes, you know, um, it's, it's just at the end of the day, like I'm for you and you're for me, like with everything else stripped off. Yeah. You talk a lot about, um, one of the things that I love, you talk about kind of finding the sense of community. Actually you, I think, right. The about finding church, while watching The Bachelor. Uh, can you talk <laughs> about that some? Oh, I'm sure somebody's going to have my head for that. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting because I feel like The Bachelor group, like, that was one of the reasons that I, like, decided to, like, stay in Atlanta. Like, was that and, – and you will find that this is a common thing among a lot of young women in America – is that people come together to have these watching parties of The Bachelor. But, like, I've actually had a few conversations with my friends about this, like, how interesting it is that, like, in a situation where you otherwise might walk in and be, like, terribly awkward or, like, not even show up because you don't know the conversations that you're going to have, like, there seemed there was this common thing that we were all showing up for. We were all showing up to, like, watch this dude find love on TV. <laughs> and it made it easier to get to know people and talk with people. But, yeah. like... We would show up every single week and we still plan to show up on May 28th when The Bachelor comes out again. Um, <laughs> but but it was one of those things where it's like I they were the first group of people like after I, I resolved to stay in Atlanta that I had to like after the episode was done one night, I just had to be honest with them and say like, I don't want to be here. Like I want to run from this. Like I don't even want to like show up most nights. And that's because I like I'm. I was driven by this fear of like people don't stay and you can't stay long enough to like have like have people in your life. And once I got honest about that, I feel like it gave permission for other people to be honest. And that one um, instance that I explained in the book was a night where particularly we were just all having a bad night. There was something wrong and something going on with all of us. And the, the episode didn't get watched that night and it was like church spontaneously combusted on the kitchen floor and we were just there for one another. And I can tell you honestly that like those women that I met through that bachelor group, like those have been the people that are like my ride or dies here. Like they're yeah. the people that were at my wedding. They're the people that like when life has gotten hard, they've shown up like they're the girls that I still do Bible study with. It's funny. We do a Bible study when the bachelor isn't in season. Um, <laughs> oh gosh. But, but it, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, it was that common thread that brought us all together. But like, I don't think a single one of us shows up because we're like, yeah, like we really want to know what's going to happen on the episode. Like that's a fun thing for us, but it's more so because it's like, yeah, I know I'm guaranteed to like go hang out with five to eight to 10 girls that are just like me that are going through some life stuff too. And I'm not going to be alone in it. Do y'all, do you do the, the bachelor fantasy league? 
We do. Yeah. I have been in one the past couple of years. I've just admitted that's fine. Uh, with like my my wife and some of her friends and then some of their husbands got in on it. And so I thought I'll get on, get on. I'm terrible because I forget to do it most weeks. So I Uh just, I lose a lot, but that's fine. So you are, you are a watcher of the bachelor and bachelorette then. Um, somewhat reluctantly, my wife really likes it. And it is like, you know, when you're driving on a highway and you like somebody has crashed and you look at it as you're driving by, you can't help it. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of like the equivalent because the whole time I spend just being frustrated by what's that like, Hey, this is terrible. Like, uh, everything's awful, but it, you, you can't, can't look away sometimes. Yeah. But you know, it's so funny. Cause I totally feel like the bachelor, like compared to so many other things on TV, I'm like, this is like the classiest thing we have. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think what's, what's interesting and what I love about the fact that that's kind of how you found a lot of your community is, I mean, I think kind of going along with the theme here is sometimes we think that, you know, oh, to find my best friends, I need to throw a big fancy dinner or there has to be like this big, like everything Mm -hmm. has to be like, you know, I'm going to create this perfect moment. And I think a lot of times it's not. It's the small things of, hey, come over and watch this show every week. right? I think that's why people love getting together to watch sports, because there's another thing that's also happening that you can kind of pay attention to and then kind of talk. And, you know, it's small moments in kind of day to day life. Well, because I, I, I remember where that was a thing for a while, like specifically on social media was like all these like fancy extravagant like dinner parties and like everything was like about capturing like the table and the food that you were eating and all this stuff, which really just like paints a picture of like a party that was happening that you didn't get invited to, you know? Right, right. Um, But like it's interesting because it's like, yeah, like you can build these beautiful moments, but I've really had to challenge myself to say like, okay, am I building this beautiful moment because I want other people to see it and admire it and want to have the same thing? Hmm. Or am I simply building the moment because I want to be in the moment with my people, you know, like, it's like one of those things where it's like, we had because we still like to like, throw little parties or get together or like we had a stranger things uh viewing party back in October and like we had like a ego waffle bar and like we made like <laughs> demogorgon blood like and like all of this stuff and it's like I just remember like us all being there and being present to it and like that was the beautiful thing about it, it was like all of us, but we were all gathered around a common thing. And like yeah. that person didn't know that person didn't know that person. And so yeah, I think it's I think it's simple things. I think it's simple hospitality. And I think that like on the receiving end, when you get the invitation, you have to be willing to just show up, even when you don't want to, even when you're tired, even when you like wanna be a last minute flaking out type person, you know? Yeah. Like we had a birthday party last night and there were multiple times like we had been away for a wedding all weekend and we RSVP'd that we'd be there that night. And there were a few times throughout yesterday that I'm like, I don't really want to go. Like, you know, like he won't miss out. Like he's going to have so many people there, but like we went, we had awesome conversations that we wouldn't have had otherwise. And like, we walked away from the night being like, wow, like that's a lot to think about. Like we have a lot to go home and chew on. And like, Mm. if we hadn't shown up and we just sat on our couch and like ate tacos or whatever, like it still would have been a good night. But like, I just, I find that that's the value of people. It's like people bring so much to the table, but like we have to do our job of, of showing up when we say that we're going to show up because that's like the number one thing with our generation. I think like we say we're going to be somewhere and then we flake out and like, 
I've just found the days that I don't feel like going and doing the thing are often the days where I like look back and I'm like, oh, I'm so thankful I did. Yeah. Hmm. So one one of the things that goes along with, I guess there's a lot of themes that run kind of all throughout this, but you write about how a lot of us are waiting for kind of a big reveal from God, but you write yeah. this, what if it's not some big reveal? What if it's just a lot of work and choices, the slow, slow work of building the muscle of discernment? And we mm-hmm. touched on it briefly before, but I guess I wanted to ask you, what does it look like? I mean, you say building the muscle of discernment, which is again, kind of a, a Christian-y word, but like, what is that? What does that mean? I mean, how, what does that look like day to day? Well, I think it's like one of those things where I actually was just reading about this this morning about like we, we in a lot of ways, like we wait on those big flashy moments. And when we don't have them all the time, we think God's not here. God's not providing like God slipped out the back door, you know, but I'm finding more and more that it's like our spiritual walk, like is something that we have to maintain and take care of. And it's something, it's almost as if like you are training in the gym. And so in order to train in the gym and to grow muscles and to grow endurance and to be able to like lift heavier things, like you have to keep going back to the gym. Like you start with your small baby muscles and you just have to keep training. And there are going to be so many days where you do not want to go to the gym in the same ways that there are going to be days where like you don't want to get in the Bible and you don't want to dig deep. But it's like, those are the times in which we still have to show up. We still have to do the maintenance and we grow and get stronger whether we can see it on the outside or not. And so I found that with my own spiritual walk is that it's like it's a daily thing and it's digging in deeper when I don't feel like it. I think that that's the point of discipline is that like we make it a habit and we we show up to it steadily, like the way that we show up to other things. Um, but yeah, I think that in all spiritual gifts, like that discernment that that being able to like you know get a spiritual direction or an understanding like that only increases with time and that only increases the more we come back to it yeah this is really interesting uh i just literally while you were talking i got an email about an event for you so look at that oh fun um Sorry, it got me so off guard. It popped up. No, no, you're <laughs> <laughs> um, It's probably my book launch for It you. is, it is. It popped <laughs> up. It said, from Lane and Friends. Hannah's, uh, what, what? Um, Gosh, it's that's so, so awesome. So you recently posted something on Instagram. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read it and then ask a question. Is that okay? Yeah. It was a picture of your new book. And it says, I get nervous every time I press publish on a post because I really lost my life to my first book. I found my identity in that book. I let the expectation to perform cripple me. But the beautiful part, the breakdown of who I was, led me into a life where performance is no longer an option. What is different about the process of writing this book than the last book? I mean, what did you learn in between them? So, I mean, night and day, like literally could not be more different the first book from the book. Um, And I think part of that, you know, it was a growth curve. It was like when I got the book deal for the first book, I really was like, I'm going to put everything that I have into this thing, you know, and like, it was like, I'm up at 5am. And I'm writing until like, noon every single day. And then I'm taking a break. And then I'm coming back. And then I'm doing editing. Literally, that book was was my life that was my existence and um as much as I can say like yeah it's great to be that dedicated to a thing like that shows like that's admirable 
it at some point stopped being like the thing, the passion, and it became kind of my identity, as I said, like it became mm. the thing that like, I leaned on to be like, this thing gives me worth, this thing gives me value. Um, yeah. And so when it was no in my hands anymore like I, I really didn't know what to do with myself like I really didn't know that like how to put myself into another project and that I think was something that really led to that depression like growing and getting stronger and like really kind of taking me down and so I think I had enough time and space between the first book and the second book to really like to have rebuilt my life and kind of built that new normal out and placed health as like my priority above everything else mm. um and so when I wrote the second book it just was very interesting because I still kept those 5 a.m hours and I would probably write from like five to like nine or ten in the morning but then after that I would be done and I would walk away and I wouldn't touch it for the rest of the day. I would do all of my other obligations, all of the other things that I was still actively like working for clients, all of that. And, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be obsessed with it when Lane came home. I wouldn't be constantly talking about it with all of my friends. It was very much, this is the time that I do it. I show up, I cover the thing in prayer, God shows up and then I walk away and like, yeah there's something very freeing about that, that like I can look at this book and I can have people quote it and I can see it on Instagram and I don't have an attachment to it. I don't have some expectation that this book is going to fill me. Like we said earlier, like a lot of people I think like can fall into that trap and I know it because I fell into that trap of thinking like this book is my everything. Like this book is like the prize jewel and I don't, I don't look at this book in that way. I think that this book was a beautiful gift and a blessing, but it's not mine anymore. Now it gets passed on to other people and I create something new. Yeah. So let me ask you, you read in here a line about kind of being in the dark and it says, when you get pressed into the dark, you figure out what you really think about God. Hmm. What's the difference in what, how you think about God now and before this long season of depression? Well, it's interesting because I definitely realized and learned throughout the depression that when I was thinking with the mindset that, you know, God is for me and God is pulling me out of this and God like sees me in this depression and it breaks his heart. I was able to actually like gain quicker recovery. Like I found myself doing better and better with that mindset. When my mindset would shift back into an old way of thinking, of thinking like God caused this, God wants me to be depressed, God's mad at me, God's punishing me. That was when I found myself just like digging myself deeper and deeper into a hole. And so like, it's just interesting how much I had this very fickle view of God before I went through this depression. I believed that God kind of was just like, um, you know, like he was, he changed a lot. Like he was like people, like one day he liked me, one day he didn't like me. Like if, if I did something wrong, then I would pay for it. And like, that's not the God of the scriptures. Like that's not the God of the Bible. Like that's not the redemption of Jesus. And so I really had to like re-meet God under no other um, other context. I had to take everything that people had taught me or shown me about God or made me believe about God. And I kind of had to like put it to the side in order to just like 
really meet with him myself and really seek out answers in the Bible myself. And it really, it changed my relationship and it rebuilt my relationship because for the first time I was doing it for myself and not for other people. Like I was doing this because I was like, okay, if they say that my faith should be everything, then I'm going to build the foundation in which it is my everything, in which it is my compass, in which it is the thing that I go back to again and again and again when life disappoints me. And it only was able to rebuild, be rebuilt so strong, I think, because I finally chose to build out of love rather than build out of this idea that, like, God is somebody that I should constantly be afraid of. Mm-hmm. Do I believe, like, God is wrathful? Do I believe that, like, God is a God of justice? Yes. But, like, if I read the scriptures and what God actually says about me, like, it is such a different narrative than the one I often believe in my head. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify, just to make sure, because we talked about this some last time, right? When you mentioned there, you know, God working to kind of pull you out of this depression, you mean that kind of in conjunction or God working through also counseling and medication as well as the power of prayer and things like that, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I will never discount counseling and medication, but it was very interesting to see that so much of it like came from my mindset about the way that I was thinking about things, you know, like if if you've built like your whole life around this idea that like God is your everything. And then all of a sudden, like that God isn't for you anymore and he doesn't love you. And he looks at the depression and says like, you deserve this. Like you're likely not going to be able to get up every single day, you know, like how is that even like, I, that is what I believed though. When it first came on like an onslaught, I thought, man, I must've done something wrong. And this is like, this is punishment for it. And I had so many people around me being like, that's not God. That's not the way that God works. But like in order for me to fully believe that I had to retrain my brain and like retrain my thoughts and push my thoughts from like a very negative space to like a more positive space. I mean, I will openly say that I am the person that's like, glasses half empty, you know, and I'm trying to get more into that abundance mindset. Like, that's why I'm so thankful for Lane, because Lane is like, God's abundant, God's good all the time, you know, (laughs) and like, I just, I've never been able to wrap my head around that. But he's so solid and assured, even in the hard times, like he doesn't believe that God changes and wavers. And so I have been slowly but steadily like, learning more and pushing myself more towards that mindset of like, oh, you're right. Like that is a belief in my head that isn't necessarily true. Yeah. Hmm. There's one last quote that I want to ask you about. You write, avoiding something and moving through something are two very different things. What do you mean there? I mean, I know that you talk some about kind of just avoiding the depression and saying this isn't, I'm I'm just going to push through whatever, and then actually kind of dealing with it. But I mean, what's the difference there? Well, I think it's, I think it's honestly like we can so easily just like avoid things that are right in front of us that we need to deal with that we don't feel like dealing with. So we push them to the side or we shove them down or we like silo them away in like a closet in our mind. And like, just because it's out of sight doesn't mean that it's out of your mind. And I am a big believer that like the things that we don't deal with, like will eventually come back and we will have to deal with them. Like it's just something I've seen in my life and in the lives of other people that I care about. And so like, 
I look back on that journey and I think like, you know, like I really could have seen the warning signs. I totally could have seen that I was isolating myself, that I was like pushing away from everybody, that I was having a really hard time, like paying attention, doing my work. I was like crying pretty consistently, if not every day. And I just avoided every warning sign. And I I really think I probably could have um, avoided what happened and avoided that breakdown if I had sought out help or counseling earlier. Um, And so now I'm more of the person where it's like, okay, if like something happens or a thought comes up or like something like unnatural just like kind of comes into my mind, it's like, okay, like, let me think about that. Let me deal with that now rather than letting that be something that gets shoved in a corner. But then eventually like it grows bigger and bigger and bigger until it's like this big thing that I really can't avoid anymore. And so that's just kind of like, been my mindset with a lot of things is like I'd rather push through it and get to the other side of it rather than to avoid it because I just don't think I have time to process it Mm. so good hey if you want to connect with Hannah you can find her online at hannahbrencher.com on Twitter Instagram at hannahbrencher on Facebook you can search Hannah Brencher on Pinterest or on Amazon wherever books are sold you can grab this book come matter here your invitation to be here in a getting there world If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, the episode comes out on May 28th. This book comes out May 29th, so you can go pre-order it or order it if you listen to it, not the day of. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at robertvore. Hannah, last time we had you on, we had you close us out with a love letter to the listeners. Uh, At the end of this book, you write some traveler's notes to the reader, which I thought were some of the best parts of the whole book. Can you give our listeners some some traveler's notes? Yeah. Ooh, on the spot. Um, (laughs) Ooh, let me think. Yeah, that was actually my favorite part of writing the book was the last chapter, which is hilarious because it was like the last thing to show up. And I'm like, wow, I like this better than everything else. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I think traveler's notes, I would say, you know, like, number one, like, if things are hard right now, if if you're in a hard space, if you're feeling like you don't belong, like, um, it's not a sign that God has abandoned you. It's not a sign that you're going to stay in that space. And so like, you keep pushing and you keep moving forward and be sure to talk to your people about it and and let people know when you're struggling or you're having a hard time because people can't help you if they don't know that you're lost or you're hurting or you're broken. Um, I guess another traveler note would be take care of yourself. Um, I think that I I definitely went through a time in my own life where I thought like self-care was like a selfish thing. And I look at it now and I'm like, no, self-care is so important and it's so vital, especially if you are somebody who deals with any kind of mental illness. And so carve out time and space in your day for you to um, do the things that you love and and do things that fill you up and give you joy. Like I have a, a big list in my notebook of all the things that like give me joy. And at any time that I feel like I'm spent or I'm stressed, I go back to that list and I pick something off the list that I'm going to do that day um, or something that I can do in the week ahead to look forward to. And I guess the last note that I would give is um, 
yeah, what we were talking about earlier, finding time to unplug and step away from the phone and really ask yourself that question of like, am I doing this thing because I want other people to see me doing this thing or am I doing this thing because I want to live fully in the moment? Um, I've recently started to shut my phone off for three hours out of the day. It's probably the best three hours that I have. I get the most work done and the most creatively fueled. And so Mm. I'm learning that like just because you shut off doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that you'll miss out on anything. A lot of times what you don't even realize is that you miss out when you don't shut off and you get really present to the work that you're doing. So, Mm. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on again. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. And I guess I'll see you in a couple weeks at this uh, this event I just got an email for. Awesome. Great. Can't wait to see you. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHPodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.